Uh, good evening. Uh, this is somewhat unique. I actually was about ready to get us started early. Uh, for those of you who know me, um, don't know me, uh, my name is E.C. Schroeder, and I'm the director of the Beinecke Rare Book and Manuscript Library here at Yale. I'd like to welcome everyone to tonight's lecture uh, on behalf of Yale and the Beinecke, uh, and also all of our guests from Rare Book School. Uh, we are very excited uh, this year to have, every, have Rare Book School back uh, in New Haven. Uh, this is our fourth year of hosting Rare Book School classes, uh, and this is a particularly exciting year because it's, we have three new classes, or at least three new to Yale uh, classes, uh, two brand new to Rare Book School, uh, and this has been quite exciting uh, because it opens up a whole new uh, avenue into the collections here at Beinecke and at Yale in general. Uh, and also it's a great opportunity to bring people from around the country to uh, the campus to enjoy both the campus life but also the collections. Uh, we are very pleased also as well because it mixes the, the amazing teachers and faculty of Rare Book School with the collections here. Uh, and also it's a unique because we actually reopen. Uh, for those of you who missed, we were closed for the last two years and a year ago uh, where we were sitting was covered in scaffolding uh, and you couldn't move if you tried. Uh, so this is a very exciting uh, moment that we're actually back and fully uh, on board. Uh, at this point, though, I'd like to turn over to David Kasten uh, to do the introduction for tonight's speaker. Uh, and thank you all again for joining us, uh, and we'll see you around later. Thank you, Chief. Yep. He, was, he was great. Give it up for EC. Um, thank you all. I'm, I'm David Kasten. Some of you have seen more of me in the last eight hours than you uh, ever want to again, most likely. Uh, I teach in the English department here, and I'm delighted to play my role in this uh, Russian doll of introductions. I'm delighted always, of course, to be at the Beinecke, which is fabulous and very thrilled to be teaching this spring at RBS, but particularly delighted to have the opportunity to introduce our speaker this evening. Catherine James is the Beinecke's curator of early modern books and of the Osborne Collection. And Catherine James is the reason I came to Yale in 2008, though I didn't exactly know that when I agreed to come. I didn't know her when I was considering come to Yale, and I didn't yet know her when I arrived. And when I did come to know her, it became clear to me why it was I did come. Catherine's unquestionably the most engaged and energetic curator I've ever known, deeply knowledgeable about the collections, and as deeply committed to making that knowledge serve in the widest sense the interests and the needs of the community. And there's no one I know who more robustly imagines and acts upon that imagination what role a curator might play in the intellectual life of a university. Catherine's a brilliant curator, not only in the sense of building the remarkable collections, but also in displaying them. Since I've been here, she's curated three major exhibitions, which I'll say is a much neglected form of publication, in which the selection and the presentation of materials do not merely lay out important holdings, but work themselves to tell the requisite stories about what makes those objects important. In my time here, a robust community of people interested in book history across disciplines and departments has formed, and Catherine has largely enabled that, putting the Beinecke where it belongs, not as some precious and ancillary treasure chest, 
but at the center of the educational mission of the university. She's encouraged faculty to use Beinecke resources and its teaching spaces with extraordinary success, and she has herself become a much beloved teacher, offering courses on the book in Britain and teaching in the history department. She's also used the Beinecke as a venue for sponsored performances and conferences. She's forged links with the Bodleian and with Harvard. She's also, and I realize I should have begun this sentence with, of course, she is also wonderfully responsive to the endless individual questions and requests from students, faculty, and interested scholars that come across her email every hour. She is, that is, almost perfect. Now, I put the almost in there mainly on account of her own undeserved modesty. She does blush. Catherine has made the Beinecke a major center of early modern research in America. She knows not only the Yale community, but the larger community of scholars working in the field. Her own energy, knowledge, and intelligence has made her a remarkable resource for this community and also a colleague for so much of it in a way that no other curator in early modern studies anywhere in the world has done. Catherine believes in libraries and understands better than almost anyone I know what they're for. And still, she is herself a scholar of genuine consequence, as you already know or will soon discover. She's presently completing a book that she is uniquely positioned to write, a project that emerges both from what she knows and what she does on the dissolution of the monasteries and what got lost and what preserved. And she writes on that topic both as a historian of early modern England and as a rare book librarian. And in both capacities, the issues of loss and preservation are recognized as complex, moving, profound, and urgent. I have in my nine years at Yale learned more from Catherine than from any single person here. Yale would be a much less satisfying experience for me without her presence, and indeed I think I would have left after my first year without her, but that's another story for another time and definitely needs alcohol. Um, but more consequentially, what I have experienced is also true for so many of my students, for whom, as for me, Catherine has become a resource, an inspiration, a colleague, and a very valuable friend. Please welcome Catherine James, whose talk might be entitled Shakespeare's Ghost. Well, uh, thank you, David, for such a, a generous introduction. I almost feel we could all go home now, right? <laughs> uh, and I'd like to thank the Rare Book School organizers as well for inviting me. And I know exactly how arduous, even grueling, Rare Book School classes can be. So thank you, thank you all for coming out at the end of a long day, the first of, of several long days, I should remind you. <laughs> When I first started at the Beinecke, my director packed me off to Charlottesville in July for a week of descriptive bibliography. And this was truly one of the formative and, I would say, one of the, um, one of the warmest <laughs> experiences of my career. And the origins, really, of many of the questions that I ask today about the meaning of the book as object and the role of affect in the book. Now, let me beg a little sleep wrote Shakespeare on the morning of April 23rd, 1616. The bell that soon will toll me to earth hath just beat two. Shakespeare's note, illegible, as I think we can agree, 
is tucked into a diminutive 1581 New Testament, the book that comforts him in his last hours as he tells us in this signed statement, dated to 20 minutes past two in the morning. All asleep but me, he writes, farewell this world. Oh, I grow sick again. Mercy on my soul, oh God. Now to my little book again for comfort. This is, of course, a forgery by William Henry Ireland, part of the set of forged Shakespeare documents and annotated books that he began to offer to his father in 1594, Shakespeare's financial papers and contracts, his love letters to Anne Hathaway, a fan letter from Queen Elizabeth, his profession of faith, drafts of plays, and his extensive and extensively annotated library. His father received these joyously, inviting critics to their house on Norfolk Street in London to view them. On Christmas Eve, 1795, his father published an account of the forgeries with detailed transcriptions of the documents and their elaborate Elizabethan spellings. Among the many eager visitors was James Boswell, who signed Ireland's certificate attesting to the authenticity of the documents and is famously recorded as having dropped to his knees and, in a tone of enthusiasm and exultation, thanked God that he had lived to witness this discovery, exclaiming that he could now die in peace. On April 1st, 1796, some three months later, the meticulous, obsessive Shakespeare scholar Edmund Malone published his over 400-page debunking of the forgeries. So since April 1796, the literary world has been certain that this is not Shakespeare, not his book, not his hand, not his signature, not his deathbed, not his voice, not writing at 20 minutes past two on an April morning in Stratford. And yet, the thing itself, the authentic Shakespeare, is itself a problematic category based on a metaphysic of origin and presence, write Margareta de Grazia and Peter Stalibras in a discussion of historicist approaches to editing. What I would like to ask today is what the inauthentic Shakespeare can show us about the mechanics of authenticity and the ways in which this metaphysic of origin and presence, as de Grazia and Stalibras so beautifully phrase it, also acts as a relationship between participants. The signed association copy acts as the medium for a relationship between two readers. Shakespeare's signature is the point at which Shakespeare's hand meets that of his reader through time, through the page. This argument is central to my broader project, Loss in the English Imagination, in which I discuss the Ireland Shakespeare's forgeries as a late response to the documentary anxieties of the dissolution of the monastic libraries and the perceived loss of an English cultural heritage. Certainly, Shakespeare isn't the only or even the first person in this book. A 17th century reader, as you can see in red in the margins, fills the margins throughout with observations. Someone's nephew has written, My Uncle Badery, in a large, cheerful hand. But Shakespeare is the reason that the book was sold as Lot 576 in the auction of Samuel Ireland's collection in May 1801. And Shakespeare was the reason that the early 19th century collector, Francis Deuce, acquired it writing on the front end paper that it was from the supposed library of Mr. William Shakespeare and noting acerbically on the inserted letter that as it was impossible that anyone except the impudent fabricator of the Shakespeare papers, oops, oh, I'm missing a slide. Sorry about that. Well, you'll have to bear with my quote. 
that anyone except the impudent fabricator of the Shakespeare papers could read the handwriting of them to save the trouble of those who exhibited them, as well as that of the numerous inspectors. He had made transcripts of them himself, and these were usually read to spectators. This is one of these. Real or forged, it is this handwriting and these signatures which transform this book, recasting its identity as an instance of STC 2881A into that of a book notoriously not annotated by Shakespeare, part of an entire library not owned by Shakespeare in late 18th century London. The Ireland Shakespeare forgeries have something in them of a fairy tale, one drafted by Bruno Bettelheim or maybe Roald Dahl, one in which all parties, fictional or otherwise, are engaged in a Kardashian exercise of resolving urgent psychological dramas in a public forum. <laughs> As a parent and curator, I find aspects of the story perplexing. The 19-year-old son, a disappointment to his father, comes home one day with not one, but an inexhaustible supply of previously unknown documents written by the father's beloved Shakespeare. The father is scrupulously educated in copying hands, as we see from his student copybook held in the Newbury Library collections. Yet he never questions the handwriting of his son's discoveries, never challenges their orthography or content, despite his daily readings of Shakespeare, despite his own antiquarian studies of Shakespeare in Stratford. But the Shakespeare forgeries are not just about the Irelands. They are not just about finding Shakespeare. They are also part of a peculiarly English tradition of loss, one dating back to at least the 1530s and Henry VIII's dissolution of the monastic libraries. Writing to Matthew Parker in 1560, the playwright and polemicist John Bale describes rescuing books from this destruction. Some I found in stationers and bookbinders' storehouses, some in grocers, soap sellers, tailors, and other occupiers' shops. For in those uncircumspect and careless days, there was no quicker merchandise than library books. In his edition of John Leland's Laborious Journey, Bale writes of books kept by their new owners, some to serve their jakes, some to scour their candlesticks, and some to rub their boots. The dissolution created an inheritance of loss, the sense both of an irreparable break in England's cultural heritage and that lost texts could and would be found. William Henry Ireland grew up in a literary culture premised on the idea of literary loss and rediscovery. He had grown up reading about the forger Thomas Chatterton and his invention of a lost English monk's poetry on scraps of parchment, or the story of Thomas Percy, editor of the Relics of Ancient English Poetry, who tells us that he rescued a half-burnt manuscript of lost English ballads used by the housemaid to light the fire. By 1794, when Ireland discovered the Shakespeare manuscripts, he could lay claim to an English methodology of loss, an understanding that a cultural heritage had been scattered, and that pieces of it, rubble, fragments, survivals, could be excavated from the material landscape. Loss and absence were the precursor of the Shakespeare forgeries. In his picturesque views on the upper or Warwickshire Avon, published in May 1795, Samuel Ireland leads his reader through Shakespeare country, following the Avon River through Warwickshire to Stratford. The book followed the tour he took with his son, William Henry, in the summers of 1792 and 93. It participates in the English genre of choreography, one with its roots in, Ling in Leland's laborious journey and response to the dissolution, and one familiar to readers of William Camden, Christopher Saxton, and the nymph-filled rivers of Michael Drayton. 
Here nature listening stood, begins the couplet by Charles Churchill at the bottom of the page, whilst Shakespeare played and wondered at the work herself had made. At nature's feet, as you can see, a swan and Shakespeare eye each other beadily over Shakespeare's lyre. It is in this post-dissolution landscape that the Irelands locate both Shakespeare's presence and his absence. Towards the end of the preface, Samuel Ireland adds as a side that he has had the singular felicity of obtaining a treasure which had not rewarded the researches of those who have been the most assiduous and active in tracing the sources of our earlier literature. Ireland promises to bring to his readers a variety of authentic and important documents respecting the private and public life of this wonderful man. The documents are written with his own hand, Ireland says. Together they promise a picture of that mind which no one has yet ever presumed to copy, an entire drama yet unknown to the world in his own handwriting. William Henry gave his own account of the family trips to Stratford, published in his first Confession to the Forgery in 1796. Here he describes their pilgrimage through Stratford in search of relics and survivals. Like his father, William Henry found Shakespeare in the material landscape, in the tobacco stoppers, busts, and wafer seals carved from the wood of Shakespeare's mulberry tree, the bones of the charnel house by Stratford Church, which he explored as his father drew the Shakespeare monuments inside. They visited Clopton House, a mile from Stratford, in search of deeds and manuscripts, said to have been moved there after this destruction of New Place, the house in which Shakespeare died. Here, asked about surviving documents from Shakespeare, the owner replied, by God, I wish you had arrived a little sooner. Why, it isn't a fortnight since I destroyed several baskets full of letters and papers in order to clear a small chamber for some young partridges which I wish to bring up alive. And as to Shakespeare, why, there were many bundles with his name wrote upon them. Why, it was in this very fireplace that I made a roaring bonfire of them. The story invokes a familiar trope of loss. Bales railing against the use of monastic manuscripts as pie liners or barrel plugs, or William Henry's own account of Thomas Chatterton's tirade against his sister, Chatterton's violent anger when she cut up the old parchments, deeds, and other things which were accounted of no value, using them for thread papers or to cover the school books of children. Then, as now, Shakespeare scholars worked in a climate of documentary scarcity. Francis Webb, in publishing a pamphlet in support of the Irelands, commented on the curious lack of documents or books belonging to Shakespeare. There can be no doubt that Shakespeare read much, and such authors to which his peculiar genius would particularly direct him. Considering the veneration in which his memory was held by those who had been happy in his acquaintance when alive, as well as the enthusiasm with which every relic has been sought from his time down to the present, is it not extraordinary that few, if any, books or papers authenticated by his own signature or by the tradition of others have ever come into the possession of the learned? By contrast, William Henry Ireland's Shakespeare was gifted with an immense and satisfying documentary abundance. Deeds, letters, poems, play, play manuscripts, and an entire library, complete with library catalog, whose books Shakespeare had remembered to annotate at key moments, such as his imminent death. This abundance, its absurd materiality, became the object of satire. 
Ah, Sammy, Sammy, why call forth a ghost? asks Shakespeare of Samuel Ireland in the familiar verses from the ghost of Willie Shakespeare to Sammy Ireland, published in the wake of the forgeries in 1796. Shakespeare's genius unconfined with fancy plays, Woodward writes, not locked in trunks, in ancient dirty scrolls, long shreds of parchment deeds and musty rolls, receipts for candles, bills, and notes of hand, some that you may, but more not understand. Samples of hair, love songs, and sonnets meet, together met by chance in Norfolk Street, where fruitful as the vine, the tiny elves produce young manuscripts for Sammy's shelves. The Oaken Chest also published in 1796, wonderfully satirizes Shakespeare's overpresence in the Ireland forgeries. The print shows Shakespeare's oppressive manuscript materiality, the drafts of plays, the leaves from old books to write plays upon with various watermarks, the annotated books carefully dated, Bacon's History of Henry VII, 1622, Notes by Shakespeare, Hayward's Life of Edward VI, 1630, with Notes by Shakespeare. Overwhelming even the textual relics, Shakespeare's extravagant lock of hair, which you can see in the center here, source of the many hair relics included in the Ireland forgeries and shown here in this glossy specimen from the Huntington Library, one that Peter, Peter Stallybrass very kindly lent me for this paper. By far the most copious of the Ireland forgeries was the Shakespearean Library. From the outset, Shakespeare was presented as prescient reader annotator, filling his books with notes in his own hand and those of a very curious nature, as Ireland said. Ireland's Shakespeare was a gratifyingly sympathetic reader. His notes in Ireland's words exhibited him in a new character, uniting with the bard, the critic, and the moralist, and displaying an acute and penetrating judgment with a disposition amiable and gentle as his genius was transcendent. This intimate Shakespeare, alone with his books, would prove highly acceptable to every sincere admirer who will doubtless concur with the editor that nothing should be lost, scarce even one drop which fell from Shakespeare's pen. When Samuel Ireland's collection came up for auction after his death in 1801, the Shakespearean library fell on the eighth and last day of the sale, following the father's extensive collection of books and historical artifacts. These included a pair of white leather, leather gloves given to Queen Elizabeth from Mary, Queen of Scots, Sir Philip Sidney's jacket, a purse made of glass beads given by Shakespeare to his eldest daughter, and a Shakespearean toothpick case cut from the mulberry tree outside his house, which sold for 10 shillings. On the eighth day, the 74 lots of the Shakespearean library came up for sale. And I'd like to focus here on the first three lots of this collection, as they are in many ways definitive of the library and of William Henry Ireland's imagination of Shakespeare as reader. Lot 514 was Shakespeare's catalog of his library, a manuscript now held by University College London. The library catalog is characteristic of Ireland's framing of Shakespeare and Shakespeare as material reader. It is bound in green Morocco with a title gilt stamped on the spine, Shakespeare's manuscript catalog of his books. Ireland famously scorched his paper to age its appearance. A hole is burnt through the page here. He used ink that he described acquiring from a journeyman binder, apparently expert in concocting old-seeming materials. In his characteristically illegible hand, Ireland describes the books he thinks Shakespeare would have had in his library, Caxton's Chronicles, Hollinshead's Chronicles, a book that Ireland was not able to find and a sufficiently wide-margined copy to annotate. Further down the list, Sebastian Brandt's Ship of Fools, Boccaccio, his works, Spencer, Sidney's works, Chaucer. 
This is, of course, Ireland's own wish list for Shakespeare's library, as he wasn't always able to find copies of these books. He gave the list to his father while buying books to annotate for the Shakespearean library from Messrs. White in Fleet Street and Mr. Ottridge in the Strand, as he relates in his confessions. Ireland describes the library as bulk, a usefully voluminous addition to the forgeries, quicker and easier to create than the painstaking effort of writing and transcribing plays, letters, or wills. It was easy to make Shakespeare present in the books. In order to augment the bulk of the Shakespearean papers, he writes, I had recourse to the introducing of volumes and tracts to about the number of 80, containing notes written in the disguised hand, while on the title page of each appeared the signature of William Shakespeare, by which I meant to infer that the books in question had originally been in the possession of our bard of which volumes the ensuing were the most conspicuous, as containing a variety of annotations presumed to be from the pen of our dramatist relative to the works in question. The Shakespearean library was intended from the outset as an exercise in English canon formation, drawing Shakespeare as reader and commentator on the volumes in his collection. Lot 515, which you see here, is a 1590 edition of Spencer's Fairy Queen, also bound in green Morocco. The spine title neatly couples the two authors, Spencer's Fairy Queen, Shakespeare's Manuscript Notes. In his Confessions, Ireland describes this imagined encounter between Shakespeare and Spencer. Upon the margins of this poem, I was most particular in my comments, well aware that a writer of such celebrity as Spencer must have attracted the notice of Shakespeare. In addition to which, I was fully convinced that such notes would be regarded with the strictest scrutiny by every visitant in Norfolk Street. So much were the notes esteemed, and such was the value conceived to be thereby attached to the two volumes, that a gentleman who shall, who shall be nameless positively made an offer to Mr. Samuel Ireland of 60 pounds for this edition of Spencer's Fairy Queen, with the marginal notes so introduced by myself as the comments of William Shakespeare. And you can start to hear William Henry Ireland's pride in his accomplishment as well in the Confessions. From the outset, Ireland Shakespeare was a gratifyingly present and coherent reader, signing and initialing at every conceivable opportunity, as if reminding himself of his own identity. In his copy of Lot 516, shown here, Carrion's Chronicles, Shakespeare notes possibilities for plays in his reading of British history. Upon the margins of this production, Ireland writes, I annexed several manuscript notes, and to the best of my recollection was particular in affixing the same to those particular monarchs' reigns which have been dramatized by our immortal poet. Shakespeare's notes were materially incorporated into the library. As Deuce notes in his biting commentary on the New Testament, Ireland's handwriting was very difficult to read. Ireland therefore added transcriptions in, con in contemporary handwriting. And because of this, many of the volumes in the Shakespearean library were rebound to contain the interleaved transcriptions. Samuel Ireland can be found in his accounts in the British Library holdings, itemizing the expenses for the construction of the Shakespearean Library. Clasps for Lear, four pounds, seven shillings, read the accounts for 1796, 1795. Six green cases, two pounds, nine shillings. Three folios, binding Russia and paper, six pounds, six shillings. Binding the Shakespearean tracts in green Russia, 10 pounds, 10 shillings. Signed by Shakespeare 
annotated by Shakespeare, written in suitably illegible and ancient handwriting, bound up with transcriptions and handsome green bindings, gilt stamped with their titles on the spine, the Shakespearean Library gave Ireland's audience a canonical Shakespeare, one passionately interested in Elizabethan literature, a Shakespeare who was comfortingly present in his books, one who read, spoke, thought, even died inside his collection. Like graffiti, the signature marks Shakespeare's ghostly presence alongside the late 18th century reader. Shakespeare was here and everywhere inside the Shakespearean library. Even while dismissing the library as fraudulent, Malone recognized the signature's value as currency. The books themselves he dismissed. But are old books so very difficult to be procured, he asks, a question we could echo here at the Beinecke. <laughs> and could not two or three hundred have been picked up on stalls and elsewhere in five or six years, during which the scheme may have been in contemplation? The value of the Shakespearean library lay solely in the presence of Shakespeare's signature and its testimony to his presence alongside the reader within the shared space of the book. But valuable or costly books were not always necessary, Malone wrote. Worthless books, when duly appropriated by writing our poet's name 40 or 50 times in them, would do just as well. It was Shakespeare's presence, his signed identity in the margin, that gave them meaning. Ireland's forgeries and forged library were the product of a late 18th century concern with historical authenticity, with rectifying the problems of documentary absence. As William Henry Ireland admitted, the forgeries were only made possible through the publication of George Stevens' 1778 edition, with its facsimile representations of Shakespeare's signature. Malone recounts his own acquisition of those signatures with Stevens when, in the year 1776, Mr. Stevens, in my presence, traced with the utmost accuracy the three signatures affixed by the poet to his will. Stevens and Malone collect the signatures as empirical evidence of Shakespeare's spelling of his name, eyewitness testimony to Shakespeare's writing of himself. And yet, no one was more aware than Malone of the point made by Alan Nelson in, on the early modern facsimile, that it is a, a human recreation of an original, either copied by, by eye or traced, and then copied again by the engraver. At all stages of the process, there was the possibility, and indeed the probability, of changes creeping in. Ireland describes himself constructing Shakespeare's signature painstakingly, letter by letter, as much as possible, he says, to resemble the tracings of his original autographs. Later, when trying to make a living from his reputation as the forger of Shakespeare, he recreated the sets of forgeries he had made in 1795 and 96, endlessly recreating Shakespeare's signature in hand for an audience of Shakespeare forgery collectors. In his second, later life career, Ireland reproduced the original authentic forgeries, as he termed them, signing himself only as the author in his correspondence with his publishers, erasing his own signature entirely. The dead shall be raised is the inscription over the entrance to the Grove Street Cemetery, just catty corner, across the street from the Beinecke. This text from 1 Corinthians captures most, much of the anxiety, the longing that informs the study of Shakespeare. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. The Ireland forgeries force us to ask what the incorruptible body of Shakespeare, the incorruptible corpus of Shakespeare, would look like. Here in the Grove Street Cemetery, you will also find the grave of Delia Bacon, New Haven Shakespeare scholar and an early proponent of the disintegrationist theory, the idea that Shakespeare might well have been a person, but that Shakespeare, the author, represented the collaboration of Francis Bacon with others. 
Like Ireland, Delia Bacon sought to raise Shakespeare from the dead. She wrote Nathaniel Hawthorne of her vigil at Shakespeare's tomb at the Holy Trinity Church in Stratford, waiting for the courage to see through her intention of opening the grave and remarking on the rustling sounds made as it transpired by the extremely uneasy sexton keeping watch over her. The Beinecke holds Bacon's copy of the works of Shakespeare, the textual corpus that she has annotated throughout with her notes on the true authorship of the plays, her decryption of what she viewed as the plays cipher, their clues to the real Shakespeare, Shakespeare's identity. Bacon, others, Bacon, read the margins of her Shakespeare. Ah, Sammy, Sammy, why call forth a ghost? asked Woodward of Samuel Ireland in 1796. Shakespeare's genius unconfined with fancy plays, not locked in trunks and ancient dirty scrolls, long shreds of parchment, deeds, and musty rolls. Shakespeare's ghost was summoned again in 1803 in a broadside printed by Luke Cancerd after England's declaration of war on Napoleon and France. Upon this jar charge, cry God for us, for England and St. George, it reads. Hansard's broadside assembles a textual Shakespeare, gathering the greatest hits from the plays King John and Henry V, giving us Shakespeare's ghost, our immortal bard, as good an Englishman as poet. Like Delia Bacon, Hansard's ghost has a textual corpus, one assembled from print and printed sources. This textual assemblage is the Shakespeare we have largely inherited today. The modern weapon, wrote the great bibliographical scholar Fredson Bowers in 1966, has turned out to be the science of compositor study by which an attempt is made to strip the veil of print from a text and thus to recover a number of the precise details of the underlying manuscript. Bowers was referring to the so-called new bibliography of the early 20th century and the work of scholars like Alfred Pollard, Ronald McCarrow, and Walter Wilson Gregg to establish an authoritative editorial understanding of Shakespeare's works. With its ruthless focus on the circumstances of the printing house, the new bibliography promised the possibility of excavating an originating manuscript from early printed survivals, finding Shakespeare's hand as it was traced by its typesetters. The ghost of Shakespeare haunts new bibliography, dimly visible in manuscript behind the veil of print. Years later, in writing an elegy for Delia Bacon, Nathaniel Hawthorne retraced her visit to the house in Stratford where Shakespeare was believed to have been born. Like many of us, he paid his half a, ground for, half a crown for a guided tour of the very room in which this was said to have happened, with his rough plank floors and single window, and a ceiling so low that, as Hawthorne writes, a vast multitude have been tempted to write their names overhead in pencil. The ceiling, the walls, the corners, even the windows were crowded with the signatures of visitors, writing their names in the space where Shakespeare had been born, writing over each other, writing near or next to the signature of more famous visitors. Hawthorne was profoundly unmoved by this. Methinks it is strange that people do not strive to forget their forlorn little identities, he said, instead of thrusting them forward into the dazzle of a great renown. Shakespeare's eminence, his former presence in that space meant nothing to him. He paid his guide and left. For Hawthorne, the text remained a text. I should consider it unfair to quit Shakespeare's house, he wrote, without the frank acknowledgement that I was conscious of not the slightest emotion while viewing it, nor any quickening of the imagination. This has often happened to me in my visits to memorable places. Thank you. I know there is a reception.
reception um, on the other side. I, I believe there is a reception on the other side, um, but I think we have time for a couple of questions, if, if that's true, Laura. Or, um, yeah, so I don't know if anyone um, would like to... Uh, EC? So, so EC has asked um, about the library itself and uh, whether there was a logic to the selection, a collection development policy um, governing William Henry as he put this together, um, and also, I believe, how it would have been uh, uh, perceived by the people viewing it. And I think the answer to that is, well, I mean, William Henry gives us an answer to that. Um, and one of the problems anyone has with this topic is that you're dealing with the testimony of a notorious career-long liar, right? Um, and so everything we know about how William Henry put together his um, forgeries and the library is taken from William Henry himself, um, with a lot of acerbic commentary from Malone and others. Um, and so my impression is that Ireland was basically picking up what he could find uh, from booksellers' stalls and gathering these together quickly. You have to remember he was also doing this in secret. You know, his father, I believe, uh, I believe his father uh, really didn't ever think that William Henry had forged these, despite William Henry telling him so, uh, more or less, immediately after Samuel Ireland's publication. And so he was doing this in the sort of family household as well. And so he compiled these at, at chance. And my impression is, I mean, we, we acquired several volumes at auction. <laughs> and the Spencer is here. Um, the Carrion's Chronicles is here. Um, but I think the books themselves were basically um, easily picked up and inexpensive and not particularly convincing um, for a reader who was focused, like Malone, on Shakespeare as an author. Um, I do know that he does describe his frustration, William Henry Ireland, with not having been able to find um, a copy of Hollinshed um, to, to annotate. Yes? Were the Irelands ever uh, subject to civil or criminal prosecution? Well, um, they only went up for sale after Samuel Ireland's death. So I think the answer is no. Samuel Ireland, um, you know, he died. Um, <laughs> but he, he was very, um, it, it was a very sad story. Um, and so, so he, he, I don't think, ever forgave his son for having done this, William Henry Ireland. Um, there's, there's a whole side of this that I haven't even discussed, centering on the production of the play of Wurtigern. Um It was very public, very humiliating, um, the whole thing. And William Henry just, you know, carried on this sort of shadow career as, a, as the notorious forger of Shakespeare. And so that's how he persisted um, in kind of hand-to-mouth over the course of his life. And you find him in his correspondence. Uh, writing, basically trying to sell these things to interested audiences. Uh, and one of the interesting points, I think, is that there were uh, audiences who would acquire the uh, Shakespeare forgeries, just as we have at the Beinecke, um, because they had this, um, not only the Shakespearean, uh, the association with the forgery was itself enough of a, was captivating for, for audiences. So, but, but, but forged religious relics, I'm not sure. So, so, so anyway, so, so I don't think there were any prosecutions. There was no, like, justice was never done, except that everybody died unhappy, right? <laughs> so, yeah. Maybe one more question. Um, yes, in the middle here. Um, I 
Well, I think the... I think the um, production and acquisition of forgeries is a fascinating topic in its own right. My personal interest in the area that I would love to pursue from this is uh, John Payne Collier's uh, forgeries. And of course, he, his work on the, Shakespeare, on the Shakespearean library, on Shakespeare's library, the books that Shakespeare must have read, um, was the next um, iteration of the Shakespearean library. Um, and of course, he was a you know, now notorious scholar forger. Um, and so the, um, you know, as, as David knows, I'm, I'm a bit obsessed with John Payne Collier, <laughs> in fact. And so I think the interesting aspect of this, um, John Payne Collier, Stevens, um, is, is what we don't know about uh, what is or isn't authentic in what survives. And you can see um, many of the uh, stories we have inherited about what happened are, as I've said about William Henry, are derived from contemporary accounts or later accounts. And you can see even in the discussions of um, the deeds at Clopton House, all these different things, that, that there's a, a long lineage of people um, recurring back to earlier antiquarian sources and correcting them or disputing them that I think is part of the fascination of the whole topic. Really. Um, and I think John Payne Collier certainly seems to have capitalized on his expertise and his ability to create a false record in a way that William Henry Ireland really wasn't capable of doing. He didn't have the, uh, the knowledge to really um, to make this a, uh, anything more than the sort of short-lived spectacle that it ended up becoming. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you very much.